Welcome to 15 Minutes in Canberra. I'm Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth US Asia Centre. I'm really delighted to say my guest today is Ben Sacker-Kelly. Ben is a global government sector executive with major consulting firm KPMG International. Ben's held a number of different positions with KPMG over the last four years. And prior to that, he worked in government, including for the Department of Industry and Department of Education and Training, where he worked at Australia's diplomatic mission in New Delhi. He's also worked as a ministerial advisor in Australian Parliament to the Attorney General and Shadow Ministers for Defence and Foreign Affairs. Ben, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, I must say you've worked across several different vocations. There's been Parliament House, government departments and overseas in our diplomatic missions. I'm wondering then, because I look back on my own career and think about the different roles that I've had, and there were some positions in some fields that really surprised me because you just don't know what to expect before you start working in a new place. So of all of those previous roles that you've held, were there any that were surprising in terms of what you were working on or the conditions or the people that you were working with, maybe the culture? Was there something that made you think differently about the field after you started working in it? Yeah, well, I've, I've been pretty haphazard in my approach to my career. So um, I've gone into a lot of my jobs without significant expectations. But uh, I think particularly that the posting was interesting because I never really seriously considered how a mission works. I hadn't, I hadn't sort of been top of my list and, and was quite uh, a coincidental opportunity to take the job. And so when I got there, I was, I was interested to see that, you know, my impression of what a post would be is a bit different. Um, for example, I sort of figured that it would mostly be sort of DFAT staff, um, you know, there'd, there'd be a lot of that kind of um, policy engagement. And I hadn't really thought about the, the way that missions, I guess, have evolved over recent decades. So a big mission like Delhi actually has this huge representation from across uh, Australian departments. You've got teams there from agriculture, from the federal police, from the attorney general's department, um, our team in education, you've got immigration, Austrade, and um, the diversity of stuff that they were working on was just really broad, uh, as well as like the locally engaged stuff. And I think that was something that uh, obviously you don't get a chance to see in action unless you're at a mission, but uh, the amount that, you know, you need to rely on um, these really good career, locally engaged staff that we have at all our missions is, is critical. Um, they outlast all of the people on posting. Uh, they've got the corporate knowledge and obviously a lot of the local content. So uh, that was just really interesting to see how mission functioned and, and the diversity of, of people there and kind of refreshing because in Canberra, um, you know, you're sort of in your department and things can be quite siloed, but uh, in Delhi and at most missions, there's a chance to just walk next door uh, to the office uh, alongside you and talk to someone from a different agency and get things done really quickly. So I'd say that was a bit of a, a learning experience about just how missions worked and, and what kind of stuff we did. That is a really great point that not a lot of people would know is that many of our missions overseas have this cross-pollination of Australian departments so that there can be a more well-rounded approach to the diplomatic engagement, which makes so much sense when you think about it like that. Uh, reflecting on your time at that mission in New Delhi, it must have been an incredible experience. You know, when which year were you there and um, what was the relationship with India like then compared to where it is now? Because in the last couple of years, we've seen it just go from strength to strength. Um, and I'd love to hear about what your on-the-ground experience was back then. Yeah, so I got there, I think it must have been January 2014, and I was there till early 2017. So, um, is there about three and a half years if that math works out? So, I was there for like the last couple of months of Man Mohan Singh's government, and then the election of the Modi government, uh, and then the next few years of that. 
In terms of what the relationship was like, I think it was positive. Uh, it had gone through a pretty rough patch in the, the couple of years before I was there due to um, the, the problems with safety of international students in Australia. So that had made a huge impact on public perceptions in India. Um, it had been picked up by a lot of the tabloid press, even by Bollywood, uh, and particularly working in the education space, that was something that um, had subsided a little bit but was still pretty current. Um, I'd say that the relationship is still pretty, was and is still a bit thin. So, you know, there's a lot of common um, political heritage and, and understandings of systems of government and all the rest and the Commonwealth, but um, there's not still a lot of economic basis to it underneath. Um, and, and there are areas, I think, that we're still learning about each other. So business was sort of taking tentative steps into India and trying to understand the environment, probably a little bit behind where we're at with China in terms of like public engagement, um, economic engagement and all the rest. So I think that definitely progressed while I was there, but that was the situation coming in. And um, we've certainly seen a lot more effort at the political level to build that over the last couple of years. But I think some of those dynamics are still kind of evolving. Hmm. Yes, I've seen a relationship with India is really strong in some of the sort of security and strategic uh, frameworks that we have with them, such as the Quad. But in other areas like uh, the economic and trade relationship, the relationship with India has sort of had a back-to-front of evolution where we've built up the security links before we've built up the trade links, which is the opposite to what we would normally do. So it is good to see that they are starting to reinforce the sort of the weaker side of the relationship. I've never been to India, Ben. What is it actually like living there? I've heard stories. I've heard how busy it is and how, you know, culturally diverse and sort of a culture shock that it is. You were there for three years. What was it like being a part of Indian society and culture for that amount of time? Look, India is an amazing place. It really is. Um, and I, I must admit to my detriment, I knew very little about it. I think there's probably a gap in um, our education system here in terms of getting people familiar with the country and its history. Um, so, I mean, I'm a Canberran, you know, I've come from a city of 300,000 or 400,000 and we moved to Delhi, which is a city of 26 million um, and <laughs> just sort of a different scale altogether. And we tried, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, in a much more confined space, but, you know, we tried from the moment we got there, I think just to embrace it, to, to take a good sense of humor and adventure into it. And I think if you do that, when you get there, uh, it can be a bit overwhelming, but um, there's just so much to engage you and it's such a stimulating place. And I think if I had to sort of sum it up in a really quick way, um, India is a lot more like uh, a kind of a continent and a collection of sort of Westphalian countries rather than just its own entity. So, um, you know, I, I think about it much more in terms of how you think about Europe. You know, it's sort of this collection of extremely diverse um, linguistic and ethnic and cultural and um, culinary groups, um, each with their own very distinctive histories. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's, there's something different in each part of the country. So um, we were really lucky to be able to dive out. I mean, day to day, it was very different. You know, I'd be driving on my commute to work and there'd be an elephant standing next to me um, <laughs> sort of on its way to a, to a wedding. Um, you know, we'd, we'd have pe peacocks wandering around the garden in the High Commission. Um, I love how so, you I mean, describe like the, uh, the elephants on its way to a wedding, like by itself as well. <laughs> Usually with a person attached to the top, but um, very much, I'm sure, its own its own entity. Um, they're very smart animals, so I made sure I kind of kept as much distance as I could. But um, look, uh, and, and, you know, I think diplomacy, like the diplomatic community can be, it's its own thing. It's a bit of a gilded cage. You know, it's a very different lifestyle where you've got sort of a housekeeper and 
guards and all of these things. Um, so I think that that in itself was an experience and the place we were living was sort of a strata of, of Indian society that, you know, would not be comparable to where we'd be living back in Australia. So it was very interesting to see that. But we tried to kind of get out and about and explore the country too. And, you know, um, getting up into the Himalayas and, and seeing the mountain ranges, just completely different world to, to the south of India and Kerala and Tamil Nadu and and the east with Bengal and um yeah it's just it was just a learning curve and I think after three years I all I would say is I've got a better impression of how little I know about the place probably rather than feeling like I've developed expertise <laughs> you but, know um, what you you know that how much you need to know about exactly it. Oh, exactly no. yeah but no wonderful experience it's funny what you say about it being so diverse, like it is different countries within the same country, because that reminds me of something my colleague Kyle Springer talks about when he talks about Indonesia. You know, he says, oh, it's like the United States of Indonesia. And what you said about India reminded me of that, that it sounds like many different countries making up the one country. Um, another question that I have then about India and Australia's relationship with India is, what is it that Australians really should know about India, a key takeaway that they don't already appreciate? So I'm, I'm sure that when many Australians think of India, they think of cricket or they think of the food or they think of Bollywood. Um, what more deeply that should they actually know about Indian culture and society and way of doing things that they don't really appreciate taking into consideration to how diverse it is. Is there something like a lesson for us to learn and know about India that we should take forward? In northern India or in the, in the, in the south uh, or the west are very different to each other. And um, I'd say if you're going to kind of start a business relationship in India or try to work with a part of the country, it's important to just sort of narrow cast down in terms of where you want to go and understand the place a bit better. It's not the sort of big amorphous blob that you can just sort of get to know and understand pretty quickly. Um, really kind of mine down and have a look and, and you know there's things that I think just the function of the fact that it's a country of 1.2 billion people or whatever it is now um, the demographics are just incredible um, so you know the hundreds of millions of people under the age of 25 um, all competing and looking for work um, you know the 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 mindset that that engenders in terms of just the competition to get a good education and to push through the university system um, is incredible. You know, if you look at the University of Delhi, um, you know, the minimum is probably your equivalent of 100% UAI plus a few other things to get you across the line just to get a spot there. So um, when you look at the way that uh, the intensity <laughs> with which Indians approach business often and work and, and the rest of it, you can see where that's coming from. I mean, to get where they've, they've, they've gotten and get the jobs that they have, uh, it's just an incredibly competitive and dynamic landscape. So um, I guess having an appreciation for that and where they're coming from probably can help explain a lot about the different ways of doing business and different ways of interacting. But I'd say just go in with sort of a listening mindset and just try and take it in because there'll be things that probably shock or frustrate initially. But when you've had time to sort of let it think in and understand why it's happening, it all makes sense. And, you know, with a bit of empathy, you can kind of um, anticipate and then and then work with it rather than sort of just bouncing off the surface. That lesson is so apt for any any country that you're working with, isn't it? You know, your initial frustration over something usually means that, sure, it's frustrating, but once you understand the reason for that, it becomes less frustrating because you understand the cause and effect relationship and then you kind of just accept it and then work within that system because you're not going to change an entire country or way of doing business overnight. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, um, getting through the door with the Indian bureaucracy um, just to get a meeting and to get something done um, can be a lot harder than just sort of booking a meeting with an Australian department. You know, it can be um, months to get the meeting and then it can be cancelled at the last minute and things can be kind of slow to progress. And, um, you know, some people 
get quite frustrated by that. It can be frustrating. But if you think about it, you know, there's probably about, I think it's about 5,000 Indian administrative um, service um, public servants, and that's sort of the decision-making level, that branch head level, to cover the whole 1.2 billion people, right? Um, and it really is decision-making, probably does not really happen any lower than that level. So um, the person that I was dealing with, like a single person managing relationships with 26 countries, um, you know, in education, very, very hot topic for a lot of places. And you can kind of understand it. Like you, you have to be a bit humble about Australia's place in the world too and think about what they're balancing, the kind of expectations the public has on them and the huge targets, you know. A couple of years, um, I think, the, the, the skilling target was about 400 million people in, in, in only sort of four or five years. So when you take a step back and think about what they've got on their plate, um, you, you kind of need to roll with it and think about how best you can bring value to that relationship. So it's that kind of, I think, just understanding and empathy, just sitting back and thinking about it that, that can explain a lot. So, yeah. Something else that has just um, occurred to me too, Ben, is about exactly what you were talking about, the Indian bureaucracy, because I am aware that with India's caste system, in the past at least, there's been a lot of difficulty for um, people that are of a lower socioeconomic background not being able to hold the same positions as people of a higher caste in India. I know you haven't been there for a few years, but have you heard anything about how that might be changing so that there's less emphasis on the circumstances under which you were born into limiting their career pathways in the bureaucracy? Yeah. Look, I, and I, I'll be very hesitant to claim any expertise. I think that's one of the areas, uh, the caste system and the history of that, where I think I probably feel like I know, know less than I did going in just with the enormity of um, all of the, the issues there. But what I will say is that uh, India has been very proactive in its policy environment in trying to address that since independence. So um, you'll see legislation around what they call scheduled tribes and scheduled castes. Um, and so uh, it's kind of, I guess, in short, it's affirmative action legislation. So a lot of the, the public service agencies, governments at a state and a central level uh, and other institutions will have um, certain places reserved or certain policies to favour those castes and tribes. And it's interesting watching some of the debates locally. Um, for example, in Delhi, the water was cut off for a few days um, while we were there because there were protests outside of Delhi um, by a group that wasn't included in that register. So they were claiming that they historically were also subject to discrimination and, and should have been included. And so um, you can see both, end, both ends of the spectrum there. I think, you know, it's probably given the history, it's been quite necessary over the years to have affirmative action um, to sort of promote people who haven't had access to opportunities. But then you can see that it, it does make the conversation quite communitarian um, in terms of people trying to seek benefits on behalf of a community and a lot of politics uh, is also expressed in terms of community. Uh, there'll be parties and personalities that are specifically targeting uh, a particular group. So um, really interesting landscape. I won't profess to know a lot about it, but um, it's definitely a very active area of policy. And I know that Australia and India were collaborating, for example, on um, the ways that they're promoting Indigenous um, economic growth and jobs and education. And, and it's probably quite a bit that we can, we can learn there. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean... Um it's not just that it's the right thing to do to bring people and give them equal opportunity, but genuinely India is becoming a larger power in its own right. It's going to naturally have to increase its bureaucracy, so it will have to go for a wider talent pool eventually. Uh, ben, look, I, I've really enjoyed this discussion, particularly because I know very little about India and it is such an incredible country that Australians should know a lot more about. 
I wanted to finish the conversation by doing something I do with all my guests, which is to ask them about a funny or weird story that might have happened to them in the course of their career, because so often these things do happen, but you never really hear about them. And it would be great for my audience to know what things could happen to them in their careers. So do you have a funny story you'd like to share? I do indeed. I do indeed. So we'll keep it on the India theme. Um, so, you know, it was a pretty diverse role, as I said, you know, there was a lot of government engagement, um, policy work and all the rest as part of my role. But one of the areas was public diplomacy. So we would do media interviews and, you know, TV and all the rest. And um, at one point, the government had this interesting idea that um, they thought the best way to promote Australia's education was to appoint cricketers as um, education ambassadors to India. So they appointed Adam Gilchrist as Australia's um, uh, education ambassador and, and they tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, can you kind of help Gilly around while he's on the ground? So um, that was my closest brush to kind of being a sort of a bag man for a celebrity that I've had for 48 hours. And it was crazy. I mean, um, you know, people talk, it's a bit cliched about how passionate Indians are about cricket, but this was another level from the moment he got off the plane in the bridge of the aeroplane at five in the morning and all of the airport staff were lined up to try and meet him through to, you know, leaving him alone for 30 seconds while a car arrived and just watching him get mobbed. It was um, another level entirely. And from morning to night, just the way that people engaged with him. And, uh, Did he have to get any security or were you kind of the everything <laughs> bodyguard? Well, this was the thing, right? So the, 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 uh, the probably the most interesting thing that happened was we took him and Christopher Pine, who was the education minister at the time, to um, JNU, which is one of India's uh, more prestigious universities, to speak to the students. And there'd been weeks of planning for this, right? Because we knew it was just going to be a riot um, the moment that he arrived. So we had every bit of security we could scrounge from the High Commission deployed around the stage and all the rest of it. And Christopher Pine spoke and Gilly spoke. And I was standing there with one of my staff and I looked into the crowd because we had a lot of Australian vice chancellors there. And I spotted, uh, spotted Michael Kasprovitz, who's, of course, another fairly famous Australian cricketer. And um, he tagged along because he was um, working as a consultant um, for some of the universities. And he, he hadn't been sort of um, catered for by the security, I realised, because he'd sort of been part of the delegation. And I just looked, we were in this room packed with hundreds of Indian students, and I could see none of them had recognised him yet, and I was just sitting there sweating and praying that they didn't. And um, it was all going well, and then right at the end of Gilly's speech, he, he pointed his finger and he said, just want to acknowledge my mate Michael Kasparovitz in the crowd, and I just saw every head in the room just turn, and I turned to my staff member and I said to her, you've got to get that dude out of here. <laughs> like, we've got to get him out now. And she walked over. I could see her whispering in his ear and he just sort of waved her away. He was having a great time, you know, sort of um, being recognised and I just thought this is a disaster. So um, sure enough, um, Pine and Gilchrist finished their speeches. They left. All of the security left with them and it was me and <laughs> one lady from my staff left to try and extract uh, Michael Kasprovitz from this crowd. Hey, he's and done it to himself, man. <laughs> It was, well, we almost did. And I could see the expression go from kind of enjoyment to panic very quickly on his face as this sort of fairly diminutive staff member of mine was just trying to hold back this crowd. And it turned into sort of a scene from day zero almost. We're sort of rushing him out. There were people climbing over walls and fences as we're sort of running away oh with him. Gosh. And we ended up just shoving him onto the first bus we could get him on and diving on after him and, and getting out of there. But um, it's interesting, you know, stuff like that. There are just a lot of stories like that, which is just sort of bizarre when you think back on them. But um, you know, that, that can all be part of the life of a diplomat. There can be a lot of other things that are much more mundane, but that was quite an, an entertaining experience uh, in retrospect. <laughs> wow, what an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, Ben, and also sharing your uh, career experience with us. It's been extremely rewarding and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us. It's been great to catch up. Thanks for having me. 